The Old Testament reading for today comes from Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. The New Testament reading, Ephesians 6, verses 21 through 24. That is the sermon text for today. Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. Aaron being the high priest, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put My name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Let us go now to Ephesians chapter 6 and look at verses 21 through 24. Here are Paul's final words to the church in Ephesus. He said, So that you also may know how I and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are And that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. To me it does always feel bittersweet to come to the end of a study through a book of the Bible I do spend a lot of time in study, and the scriptures do impact me before I proclaim them to you. And I told you at the beginning of the study that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is among my favorite books in the Bible, and that's still the case as we bring this study to a conclusion. I think you would agree with me that this book is very rich both in its doctrine and also in its practical application. Today, this is the 25th sermon in this series, and if you remember, the first sermon was preached back on March the 15th, which was also the first Sunday that we were affected by this government shutdown. And so Ephesians, it has been used by the Lord to guide and to comfort us through some trying circumstances, and I think it has served us very well in this time. As we come now to the last four verses of Ephesians, I wish to draw your attention to Paul's Obvious love and concern for the church. Paul's love for God and Christ was, of course, supreme. He lived for the glory of God and as a bondservant of Christ. But that love for Christ was shown in his love and concern for Christ's church. His life was devoted to the building up of Christ's church. He preached the gospel. He planted churches, he saw to it that they were properly formed, and after these churches were planted, after he continued on his way to plant other churches in another region, his love and concern for the churches he had previously planted remained. Indeed, Paul suffered greatly for his devotion to God and to the church of Christ. Paul's great love and concern for the church is displayed in these final words to the Ephesians. So this morning I wish to consider verses 21 through 24 and to ask the question, what did Paul think of the church? How did he view the church? Uh, Stated differently, what did Paul see in the church that would move him to suffer so greatly and to labor so diligently 
for her success. First of all, let us consider Paul's remarks concerning this fellow Tychicus. And as we do, let us consider the value that Paul and his companions had for the church of Christ. In verses 21 and 22 we read again, So that you may also know how and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. These verses are very simple, but they are also very revealing. If we think about them, we begin to understand what was going on in Paul's life, uh, the circumstances that he was facing, and also we are given a glimpse into the fact that there were others with him. Uh, One, we are reminded that Paul was in prison when he wrote to the Ephesians. He did mention his imprisonment in the previous verse. Remember he asked for prayer from uh, the Ephesians and his prayer request was this, pray that God would give me boldness that I may proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then he said, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Um, Ambassadors, that is to say representatives of rulers and kings, they're typically treated very well by the kingdoms they visit, but not so with the ambassadors of Christ. Paul was an ambassador of Christ and of Christ's kingdom, but he was put in chains by the Jews and by the Romans. Two, we learn that there were others besides Paul who were willing to suffer for the sake of Christ's church. Tychicus is mentioned by name here in Ephesians, but we know that there were others who associated with Paul in his suffering. In verse 22, Paul tells the Ephesians that Tychicus will let them know how we are doing. Notice the plural there, we. This indicates that others were with Paul. He does not list their names here in Ephesians, but he leaves it to Tychicus to mention them when he sees the Ephesians in person. The end of Colossians reveals some of their names. We should remember that the letter to the Colossians was written at the same time as the letter to the Ephesians. And you will notice that this fellow Tychicus is also named at the end of Colossians. In Colossians 4.7 we read, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. We don't know much about him. His name is mentioned in Ephesians and here in the book of Colossians. He was obviously a close and trusted companion of Paul. He is listed as one of Paul's traveling companions in Acts chapter 20 verse 4. And in that passage both Tychicus and Trophimus are called the Asians, meaning that they were from the region that is called Asia Minor. And that is the region that the cities of Colossae and Ephesus were in. Uh, They were situated there on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. And in 2 Timothy 4.12, Paul informs Pastor Timothy, who was a pastor in the church of Ephesus, that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And Paul also wrote to Pastor Titus, saying, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicolopus, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So we don't know much about this Tychicus fellow. He was an Asian. He was from Asia Minor. He was most likely from Ephesus, in fact, as we consider what is said about him here in this letter and in the letter to the Colossians. But we know that he was entrusted with both this letter to the Ephesians and also the letter to the Colossians. In Colossians, 
Others are mentioned too. Paul mentions Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, he says. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greet you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greet you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. That is Colossians 4, 7 through 14. And so, I think it is fascinating to imagine all of these men who surrounded Paul, traveling companions of his when he was free, as he went about his missionary journeys, planting churches in one region and the next, but also men who evidently stuck by his side as he was in prison there in Rome. Perhaps they had their freedom, but they stayed near to Paul. This Tychicus fellow is mentioned many times. He was obviously trusted by Paul. Uh, these letters were given to him, and he was to take them to probably his hometown in Ephesus, but also to the city of Colossae, where uh, he was sent along with uh, someone else who was known to them more intimately. Uh, three, as we read Paul's Concluding remarks to the Ephesians, we should recognize the great effort and risk that Paul and his companions took in seeking to strengthen the churches. Writing this letter to the Ephesians and to the Colossians required effort in and of itself. Paul would have dictated the majority of this epistle to someone who functioned as a scribe. That was the custom in that day. Uh, he probably did take the pen and write these, to write these last few lines with his own hand. That seems also to be his custom. And perhaps Tychicus himself was that scribe. It may be that Paul dictated this entire letter to him and Tychicus wrote most of the words. And from there the letter would need to be hand-delivered. And we should remember that the journey from Rome, where Paul was imprisoned, to Ephesus would have been a very arduous journey. It would have taken Tychicus and his traveling companions no less than three weeks to reach Ephesus. The journey would have been expensive. It would have been very uncomfortable. It would have been dangerous. And yet it was worth it to Paul and his companions. In their estimation, the churches in Ephesus and Colossae, along with many others, were so important that the effort, the cost, the risk associated with bringing instruction and bringing encouragement to them were, were all worth it. Once in Ephesus, Tychicus would have spent time with the church. He would have read this letter from Paul. Perhaps he would have memorized it by the time that he got there to Ephesus and recited it to them. His presentation of the letter would have served as a proof that the letter was, in fact, from Paul. People did forage letters in that day. But here, if Tychicus, someone who is known to them from their hometown is delivering the letter from Paul. It would have served as a proof that it was from him. The Ephesians, they knew Tychicus. They trusted his word just as the Colossians knew Onesimus who was a traveling companion with Tychicus and trusted his word. And then Tychicus would have done more than present that letter to the Ephesians. He would have also given a report concerning the activities of Paul and his companions and the successes of the gospel in Rome. Tychicus was to encourage the hearts of the saints in Ephesus. I think one question that I might ask by way of application is this. Do you value the church as Paul and his companions did? Do you see the church of Christ as precious 
and even worth suffering for. Now granted, not all Christians will be called to suffer for the sake of Christ's church in the way that Paul and his companions suffered. But all should have the same in love, love and appreciation for Christ's church. And the question that I am asking is, do you? Or is the church something you could live without? And brothers and sisters, I do pray that you come to see the church as precious. I pray that you would be willing to sacrifice to see the church of Christ flourish. I pray that you would be zealous to promote her prosperity, to contribute to her growth and maturity, to preserve her unity. But we ought to have a particular love and concern for this local church of which we are members. But we should also be eager to see other churches of Christ thrive as well. The church in Ephesus was but one church that Paul was concerned for. And we should not forget about his concern for the churches in the region of Galatia, in Thessalonica, Antioch, Jerusalem, Corinth, Philippi, Colossae, and Rome, to name just a few. These individual churches were local manifestations of the universal church of Christ. And Paul was concerned to see them all flourish. And the same is true today. Particular churches such as this one are local manifestations of the universal church of Christ. And our concern should be for Christ's church, which means that we should pray for the prosperity of this church. We should labor for it, along with other local congregations. We should seek to promote their prosperity as we have opportunity. Here we see that Paul and his traveling companions, uh, they did indeed value the church. They, they saw her as precious. Why would they suffer for her? Why would they suffer for her? Why would they go to all of this effort? As we consider um, Paul's remarks to the Ephesians, we do see that they suffered for the church because they saw her as glorious. And when we consider what Paul wrote in this letter and, and, to, and, and to the other churches that he was concerned for, we, we see that Paul, when he viewed the church, he, he considered the church to be the bride of Christ. He considered the church to be a manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. He considered the church to be the temple of, of the Holy Spirit. He considered the church to be a sampling of that new creation community that has been, had been redeemed in, in Christ's blood. As he considered the church, he saw the body of Christ. As he considered the church, he, he saw the church as, as so very glorious. This, this body that, from a worldly perspective, can seem to be so, so simple, so humble, so insignificant from the world's perspective, is the most glorious institution on planet earth when considered from, from that heavenly and spiritual perspective, which was certainly, which was certainly Paul's. Now, brothers and sisters, I, I will not rehearse everything that has been said to you in the book of Ephesians regarding uh, the church. Um, when we read the book of Ephesians, we do not have a doctrine of the church of the sort that we will find in modern-day systematic theologies. Have you ever read a modern-day systematic theology and you've gone to that section uh, there on the church? And you will see that in a very 
a careful way what the Bible says about the church is laid out before you point by point, section by section. Paul does not write in that way, of course. He's writing letters as a human being to human beings, as a Christian to fellow Christians. His letters are lively. They are not so systematic. But as we consider what Paul says to the Ephesians and to the Romans and to the Corinthians, indeed a doctrine of the church is embedded in there. We can, we can see it clearly. We can draw it out. And as I have said, when Paul considered the church, he saw her as... Glorious indeed. Uh, the letter to the Ephesians is particularly revealing. Here we see that Paul's view of the church is, is that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And if you think about what Paul is saying here in Ephesians uh, concerning the church as the temple, that should strike you as, as astonishing. Paul was a Jew. He lived his life, the majority of it up until the death and resurrection of Christ under the Old Covenant. He, he loved the law of Moses. He loved the temple and to worship at it. He was trained in the law better than most. And yet when Paul came to faith in Christ, when his eyes were open and as he began to labor for the proclamation of the gospel and the furtherance of the kingdom of God, he began to refer to the church, these local entities, these humble entities as the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is, it is a really marvelous description of, of the church. When he saw the church, he knew that this was the entity in which the Spirit of God dwelt. And we are to think of that um, not just as individual Christians. You are a, the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have heard this before. Um, certainly Paul speaks in that way concerning individual, individual believers. But he speaks that way of the church corporately. And we are to consider this in light of uh, the revelation that we receive from Genesis all the way until the writing of the New Testament. You should remember, brothers and sisters, and we studied this not long ago when we came to the book of Genesis, that the Garden of Eden itself was a temple. Do you remember that teaching? That the Garden of Eden was itself a temple. Adam was a priest. He was a king. He was to promote the expansion of that place. As he lived there in Eden, he was to obey God faithfully. He was to preserve the integrity of that place. He was to expand its borders. But one of the most wonderful things about that, that garden paradise was that the glory of God was there. We have that little remark that God approached Adam and he walked with him as he walked with him in the cool of the evening. That the presence of God was there in that place because it was a, a garden temple. That's what it was from the very beginning. And when Adam sinned, when he failed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but ate of the tree, failed to eat of the tree of life, but ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead, he was cast out from that place. He had sinned, and when he sinned, he fell short of the glory of God. Have you ever thought, what does that mean? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think most take it to mean that we sin when we fail to give glory to God. And that is certainly true. But it is also true that sin was a falling short of the glory of God in the sense that it was a failure to enter into the glory of God. Adam was there in that garden paradise. The Spirit of God was present with him. He had fellowship and communion with the living God, but he was to obey and he was to eat of the tree of life and he was to enter into glory. But he failed. That garden place, that garden paradise was a temple. And Adam, having sinned and Eve along with him, was cast out. He was banished from that place and cherubim were set to guard it. But we know that God was merciful. We know that God promised to provide a Redeemer and as the history of, of, of the human race began to 
unfold, we see that God began to enter into covenants with man. And in due time, a covenant was entered into with Moses and the people of Israel. And what did that people of Israel do as they formed that holy nation there, having been brought out of Egypt, having been redeemed? They were to build a tabernacle and a temple. And that was a marvelous place. We read in the Old Testament about how the Spirit of God and the glory of God filled that place. The people of Israel saw it with their own eyes. They saw the glory of God there. They were to come to that place and they were to offer up sacrifices. They were to worship and they were to there commune with God Almighty. They were to enjoy God's glory and to enjoy His presence. But when we come to the pages of the New Testament, we see that the church is called the temple. The church is where the Holy Spirit of God dwells in this new covenant era. Indeed, zeal for the Father's house consumed Paul. He knew that as he planted churches, as he labored for their success, he was in fact laboring to build up the spiritual temple of God. We might also talk about the church in terms of kingdom. It is the earthly manifestation of the kingdom of God. When Christ returns and makes all things new, all will be temple. All will be filled with the glory of God and with the Spirit of God. But also, all will be kingdom. And we long for that day where there is nothing at all in in all of earth that opposes God. But where all are in subjection to Him. All have bowed the knee and they do in fact call Him Lord and honor Him as such. We long for that day. And this is why we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But the kingdom of God is present on earth even now as Christ Himself taught. John the Baptist came with that message, didn't he? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Christ Himself called men to repentance saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And where is it at hand? Where is the kingdom of God found? It is found in the church. The church is a manifestation of this, this eternal kingdom. It is present now. Here, the church is a society. It is a gathering together of, of men and women, of children even, who confess that Jesus is Lord, who honor Him as King. If we consider Paul's writings, we see that he describes the church as the body of Christ. Christ is in heaven now at the Father's right hand. We do not see Him visibly But He is present on earth, and He is active on earth. Of course, He is active in other ways too, but where is His presence manifest? Especially it is in the church, which is called His body. The church is also called His bride. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 5. The context here in verses 25 and following is on marriage. Husbands are in verse 25 said, are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And so we are taught here in this wonderfully beautiful passage that Christ laid His life down for His bride, namely the church. The church is also described by Paul as being the family of God. We being by nature children of wrath have been adopted as beloved children. And so as we walk in this world we are to have fellowship with the family of God. We are to sit side by side with brothers and sisters in Christ because we have been joined together and united through faith in Christ, the beloved Son of God. 
What a marvelous way to describe the church. When Paul saw her, he saw her as glorious. And, and I wonder, do you see the church as glorious? Or is she something that you could simply live without? How does the world see the church, brothers and sisters? The world scoffs at her. The world looks at what we are doing right now and, and, and scoffs and says, how pitiful. Consider the kingdoms of this earth. They appear to be so glorious. They appear to be so very powerful. They appear to be worthy of our attention and even worthy of our praise from a worldly perspective, don't they? Consider the, the companies uh, that are all about us. These, these organizations, they are grand, they're glorious, their buildings are so large, they're wealthy, they are powerful, they grab the attention. They could draw us away, in fact, from sincere devotion to Christ if we are not careful. But look at the church. She is so humble. She is so weak. She is so frail from a, from a worldly perspective. But that is not what Paul saw when he considered her. It's not what he saw when he considered her. Instead, he saw the most, most glorious institution on planet Earth. Paul and his traveling companions, they suffered greatly for the sake of Christ and His church because they saw her as glorious. Lastly, let us briefly consider the blessing that Paul and his companions pronounced upon the church of Ephesus. He clearly loved the church. He was willing to suffer for her because he saw her as glorious. And this blessing that he pronounces upon the church of God as God's chosen people, beloved of the Father, is fitting. It corresponds to his view of it. So let us consider this blessing. All of Paul's letters conclude with a blessing. Uh, this was not novel to him. In fact, uh, God commanded that a blessing be pronounced upon Old Covenant Israel by the priests. They were to put God's name on the people when they assembled, and they were to bless them, saying, as we have read in Numbers 6.22 and following, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And this is what Paul did with the Israel of God under the New Covenant. He concludes each of his letters with a blessing in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Think of how powerful that must have been for Israel, Old Covenant Israel, to assemble and to hear the priests pronounce this blessing upon them regularly. It was a constant reminder that they were not a common people, but a holy people. That they had been set apart by God to worship and to serve Him. It was a constant reminder that they were to live in devotion to, to this God. They were His and He was theirs. And here Paul has this custom to pronounce a similar blessing upon the churches as he writes to them. As we read in Ephesians 6, 23-24 yet again, I think you will notice the connection to the ironic blessing of number 6. Paul concludes with these words, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Paul blessed those who love Christ with love incorruptible with peace. That is one blessing that he pronounces upon the congregation. He pronounces peace upon them. Those who are in Christ by faith are at peace with God. Their sins have been removed. They have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ and they are no longer under God's wrath. 
They are at peace with him. He is their father. And they are his beloved children. And this peace with God ought to produce peace within the community and peace within the heart. And so Paul pronounces peace upon the church. And so I might ask, are you at peace, friends? Are you at peace? Some of you might be thinking right now, I certainly am not. I'm very anxious. I'm very troubled about many things. But you ought to be at peace if you are in Christ Jesus. And why should you be at peace? What is the foundation of that peace? You ought to be at peace if you are in Christ Jesus. For you are at peace with God. God is your Father. And you are His beloved children. No matter the circumstances of life, that ought to bring peace to you. That ought to produce peace within your heart. Peace be to the brothers, Paul says. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul blessed the brothers, he certainly had the women in the congregation in mind also. That needs to be said. This is the way that the Greek functioned. Uh, the Greek word adelphois can refer to both brothers and sisters together. And he blessed them with peace. He blessed them with love and faith saying that all three of these things come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that faith is a gift from God. So too is love. As John says, we love because He first loved us. And this peace is also a gift from above. When Paul blesses the Christian with peace, love, and faith, he is blessing them with more and more of it. That is what he is saying. If you are in Christ, you are at peace. You have love and you have faith. These things are already yours if you are in Christ. But here Paul is blessing the congregation with more and more of it. We must forever grow in these things and Paul prays that we will. Lastly he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Never can the Christian move on from grace. I think that is what we need to see here. Never can the Christian move on from grace, which is the undeserved favor of God. We were saved by grace in the beginning, and we are preserved and sanctified by His grace too. Effort is required in the Christian life. This we have learned. But this effort cannot be human effort alone. The Christian must forever live in full dependence upon the grace of God. And so this is a very beautiful and fitting benediction that comes from Paul here. Here Paul sets the name of God and of Christ upon the church in Ephesus. He reminds them that they are God's people, that they are the Israel of God, we might say. And he blesses them in God's name and in the name of Christ, their Redeemer. Every Lord's Day, you, here at Emmaus, are greeted in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is uh, our custom. That is our uh, tradition. And then not long after that, God's greeting is also delivered to you with the words of the Apostle. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we conclude our worship with a benediction. Uh, this benediction will come in the form of, of a blessing upon you or a charge from God, a reminder that you are His and that you are to serve Him in this world. And brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to not overlook the significance of these elements of our liturgy. They are so simple and 
They are the same, some of them, week after week, and it is possible to grow complacent in these things. But when you are greeted in Christ's name, when you are reminded that God has welcomed you by His grace, and when you are dismissed with a blessing from God, it is a reminder of what you are. You are the assembly of God's redeemed. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are an earthly manifestation of the kingdom of God. You are this foretaste of God's new humanity redeemed in the blood of Christ. You are the beloved bride of Christ. You are the family of God. For you have been adopted as sons through faith in the beloved. You are the church. And I think this means that you are the most glorious institution on planet earth. As lowly as we may appear. And my prayer is that God would grant us the ability to see the church, to see the church, not with our physical eyes only, but with eyes of faith, that we might see the church for what she truly is in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful letter to the Ephesians that has been handed down to us. We thank you for Paul and his companions, their love for the church. Indeed, uh, with, uh, with his activities, we, we see uh, that they were used by you, O Lord, to, to establish your church. We are grateful for him. Um, we are grateful for his zeal, for your house. We are thankful for the teaching that he has handed down. Uh, Father, we ask that we who live so long after the time of Christ and after the time of the apostles, that we would have the same view that we would continue to labor for the prosperity of the church of Christ, that we would seek, um, Lord, her growth always. Father, give us a love for, for the church of Christ. Um, may it not be so of us that we could live without her, Lord, but may we see her as glorious. Father, our prayer is that your kingdom would come, that you, Lord Jesus, would come quickly, but until then that you would make us faithful to proclaim the gospel. Father, our prayer is that we would be blessed to see this congregation grow, that more and more would come to confess Jesus as Lord, uh, to enter into this community through the waters of baptism, to hear be taught all that Christ has commanded us to, so that we might bring glory to your name. Father, we long to see these things, and we pray that you would make them so. Father, and bless us also with growth in terms of our maturity. We know that Paul labored as he spoke to the Colossians, labored with such diligence and suffered as he did because his aim was to present everyone mature in Christ. And may that be our aim as well. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that has been shown to us. We thank you that you have made us your children. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.